It's not long after the Jewish people have achieved their freedom as they're wandering in the desert when they begin to complain. And of course, their first complaint, very famously, is they claim Hashem has just taken them out to die in the desert. After all, they are starving and Hashem is going to kill them with a famine. In response to this, the Torah tells us that Hashem says in Perak Tezayin, Pasuk Dalet, V'yomar Hashem al Moshe, Hashem tells Moshe, this is what I'm going to do. Hineni mamtir lachem lechem, I will rain down for you bread, minar shamayim, special heavenly bread known as the man will come down from the heaven. V'yatzaha'am, people will go out each day. V'laktu devaryom v'yomo, they'll take just enough for that day to eat. Laman anasenu, hayelech b'torasi imlo, in order to test them to see if they will go in the way of my Torah or not. This is our first introduction to the notion of the miracle food of the desert, the miracle bread known as the mun. And what is fascinating is that in this initial presentation, right away, and this is a theme that's actually repeated when the Torah describes, once again, in retrospect, uh, the gift of the mun in Dvarim and Perches, but here as well as there, the mun is described as a test, that Hashem is somehow testing us with the mun. However, it's not at all clear what the test is. On the contrary, it seems to be a gift, a gift of life, a gift of convenience, uh, a miraculous bread. What could be uh, miraculous food? Why would we consider that a test? We know things like the Akedah, when Hashem tells Avram to kill his firstborn and only son. That sounds like a test. <laughs> we understand that's what it means, but how could the mun be a test? So there are a number of ideas in the different commentaries, and I want to share with you three basic approaches in the classical Mepharshim. The first is that of Rashi. And Rashi basically acknowledges, by implication, that en there's nothing inherent about the mun that's a test. It's just a gift and a blessing. However, says Rashi, im yishmu mitzvahs The test is not the mun, but the various halachos that are associated with the mun. Namely, as we just read, that they're only allowed to take the right amount that they need for that day, one day at a time. They can't take extra. Moreover, they're not allowed to leave over any or it'll rot. And as we know, and we'll eventually read, they are also given a special double portion on Friday, which they have to take in order for them to have food for Shabbos. So the various laws and requirements in halachot regarding how they take and use the mun, that is the test being alluded to, says Rashi. However, other Mepharshim explain differently. And in fact, the Ramban begins his commentary by explicitly quoting and then rejecting Rashi. And it's clear that Ramban rejects Rashi for the simple reason that even though what the test is is not obvious at first, but seems clear to the Ramban, both in the presentation in our Parsha and the presentation that we'll read later in Sefer Dvarim, that the Torah is not talking about things associated with the Mun, but that somehow the Mun itself is a test. Rashi obviously couldn't figure out what that was, therefore Rashi went with these associated challenges. But Ramban thinks that that's not the plain reading of the text. Therefore, the Ramban suggests his own interpretation, which is that the mun itself was a test in what sense? The fact that the mun was their exclusive food for 40 years, and A, it was never more than a day at a time. So therefore, they never had the security of knowing they, so to speak, had food in the cupboard, food in the refrigerator. They had to go day by day. That itself was a sense of a test without that feeling of security that they could keep food from day to day. They never had enough to store it. It wasn't allowed. It would rot. So the idea that they had to go day by day is a very big challenge. Moreover, says Ramban, it was new. It was food that they'd never seen before. 
their parents had never seen, they never heard about it before. That very act of it being new and completely and so fundamentally unfamiliar, completely removed from anything they were used to, that itself was another dimension of the test. Says Ramban, nevertheless, despite these dimensions of the test, the fact that the Mun itself was such a challenge, they followed HaKadosh Baruch in the desert for 40 years with faith in him. And that this test, the Ramban concludes, was done intentionally and deliberately and was so great of a test that the Amuna that was nurtured and developed and strengthened through 40 years of eating unfamiliar food bit by bit, day by day, actually forged a type of Amuna that would last the Jewish people in all circumstances, in all historical contexts. Third and finally is another approach mentioned by some of the classical Mafarshim, and very different than what we've seen until now. And this is suggested both by the Sforno and the Orchaim. Sforno says, what's the type of test? Kishiyah mitparnes bilotzar. The very fact that the man was such a gift, such a bracha. You wake up in the morning, you walk outside your tent, boom! There's your food for the day, just falling from the sky, day after day. So easy. You can count on it like clockwork. It's not difficult, not long work hours, no long commute back and forth from work to in order to support your family. It's just there without any effort. That itself is part of the test. Similarly, the Orachayim HaKadosh says that all of a sudden, because of this new phenomenon called the Mon, Lo Yitzarech Shum Tikkun, Penuim Mikol. All of a sudden, the man, with its ability to sustain them with very, with absolutely no effort whatsoever, created a new phenomenon. Leisure time. Zman poinui. They went from being servants who worked 24 hours a day and had no time of their own, to all of a sudden not having to work at all, not even to support themselves, because they had this free gift daily of the man. So both the Sforno and Orachayim, each in their own way, are describing a new kind of challenge. And that is the life of leisure, the life of ease. We know what the tremendous challenge that poverty can be. But wealth can also be a spiritual challenge. Will they use their new free time for Torah and for good things? Or will they abuse their leisure? As Sforno seems to imply, the Jewish people turn to Hashem in crisis, but will they still do so in times of comfort and wealth? Or will they simply forget about Hashem and just enjoy the benefits of an easy, free lifestyle and mazono? So we've seen three different approaches to what the gift, excuse me, what the test of the man could be. It certainly seems like a gift. The Torah says it's a test. Rashi says, you're right, it's associated challenges. Ramban says, no, it's the man itself, after all. It was day-to-day, they couldn't store the food, it was an unfamiliar taste and substance. And Rachaim and Sforno say, no, it's the life of leisure and wealth and comfort that they had that itself was the new form of spiritual test that they'd never encountered before. As the Jewish people stand on the banks of the Yamsuf, finally free of their Egyptian tormentors who have now been drowned in the sea, the Jewish people begin a celebratory song where they praise Hashem, they thank Hashem for all of the miracles and all of the freedom that they have now benefited from and been blessed with. This is, of course, the famous song of Az Yashir, which we read in this week's Parsha, which has become part of our daily davening every morning. After the psukim and after the song primarily praises Hashem for the miracles that took place during that generation and their freedom and exodus from Egypt, the last part of the song actually turns its attention with an eye towards the future, prophesying and foreshadowing future miracles and future geula. As the Pasuk tells us in Perak Tezva, Pasuk Tezayin, We pray that there will be a future time where there will be dread and fright that will fall upon our enemies, that the arm, Hashem, the arm of your greatness, Hashem, 
will make the people, our enemies, as still as stone. Ad yavor amcha Hashem, until your nation passes over. Ad yavor amzukanesa, until the nation that you have acquired crosses over. And then the Pesachim continues, the song winds down and concludes how you will bring them in, you will plant them on the mountain, so to speak, of your heritage, you will eventually build the sanctuary, etc., etc. Hashem yimloch li'olam va'ed, God will reign for all eternity. The Gemara in Masechta Brachos turns its attention to these final Pesachim and wonders specifically why the double and apparently redundant language of Ad Yavor Amcha Hashem twice referring to the Jewish people passing over or passing through. What exactly are we talking about and why does the same thing, thing seem to be repeated twice? The Gemara explains that in fact it's referring to two similar, but not identical, but two similar events, but two different events. The first is Bia Rishona, the first time the Jewish people will go into the land of Israel in the time of Yehoshua, just like here they are crossing over the Yamsuf, well at that future time, in the time of Yehoshua, they will cross over a different body of water, the Yardane River. That's Biarishona, the first time they cross over a river, eventually to get into the land of Israel. And the second phrase, Adi Avoram Zukanisa, says the Gemara, that refers to the second time, the Biashnia, when after the first base of Megash is destroyed, the Jewish people have been in Galus in Bavel, and eventually they are permitted to return from Bavel, and in the time of Ezra, they return to Israel to start the second commonwealth to build the second Beis HaMikdash. And that is the second phrase and the second time that they also cross over the Yardin River. That is what the Gemara says in Masech Brachos. Rav Kook, in a very beautiful and penetrating explanation contained in his commentary to the Daily Siddur, Olat Ri'iyah, on the Az Yashir section, explains that the need for this double reference. The Gemara tells us what the double reference is for. What the Gemara does not tell us is why the need for the double reference. What are we trying to convey? Why is it important for us to say this on a daily basis? Why was this important to be included in the Oz Yashir? What deeper message is being contained? And what is the importance of knowing that the Jewish people cross over the Yardane in two different times? And if Cook uses this brief, brief phrase here in the Pasuk and in the Song of Oz Yashir to serve as the basis for a very beautiful and profoundly important uh, explication of one of the key points of his personal approach to uh, Judaism and Jewish thought and philosophy. And if Cook explains that what's being referred to here is fundamentally two different types of Kedusha, that the Jewish people possess two different forms of holiness. The first is what he calls a skula, an innate holiness, which is a certain Kedusha mitzad hanefesh. There's a certain innate holiness that every Jew has, every Jewish soul possesses, which is innate, it is intrinsic, and it also can never be removed. It is immutable. However, there's a second form of holiness, a second form of Kedusha, which Rav Kok refers to as the Kedusha's Hama'asim, the type of holiness that we acquire through our actions, through our Torah study, through our mitzvos, through our acts of kindness. In addition to the innate holiness, we can add layers of holiness and additional levels of holiness onto that by the actions that we do. Says Rav Kok, broadly speaking, in broad strokes, the two generations that are referred to in the Gemara, that of the first base of Megdash and the second base of Megdash, represent respectively these two different types of holiness. In the era of the first base of Megdash, the innate holiness of the Jewish people was clear to all. According to the Gemara Masech Yuma, there were daily miracles which were open, revealed, incredible miracles occurring on a daily basis in the base of Megdash. This was a time of prophecy where God's presence was felt invisible to all. But it wasn't necessarily anything that we did. There were no specific 
incredible contributions or advances that the Jewish people were making in terms of Torah in that generation, but their very being at such a high level was an expression of this incredible presence of the divine. And therefore, says Rav Kook, that's referred to in the first phrase, Ad Yavor Amcha Hashem. The very fact that we were just Amcha Hashem, nothing else needs to be said. The very innate holiness that we have as being Hashem's people, the chosen people, that itself gave expression to this incredible holiness which we saw in time of the first base of Megdash. However, the Apostle continues and says, Ad Yavor Amzu Kanisa. This is referring to the time of the second base of Megdash, where the innate holiness was relatively diminished, or at least it wasn't visible. We didn't have the daily and open miracles that we had in the time of the first base of Megdash. Those were severely muted and diminished at the time of the second base of Megdash. However, says Rav Kook, in exchange, we didn't have that, but we had something else which was in a certain sense more impressive. Kedushas HaMa'asim was actually increased. The accomplishments of that generation were actually incredible and still are with us to this very day. That was the generation of Anshak Nessus Agadola, which enacted all sorts of new rabbinical decrees. The Mishnah was compiled. Torah Sheba'alpeh flourished. And therefore we say, Ad Yavor Amzu Kanisa, and that generation, the second time the Jewish people crossed over the Yardin, their holiness and their relationship with Hashem was not innate by the very existence, the very presence of Hashem, the very fact that they were Hashem's people, but rather it was the type of holiness that was Kanisa, that it was acquired, as it were, through the tremendous actions of that generation, through all of their mitzvot, through all of their good deeds, that itself acquired form of holiness which was different than the type of holiness that was most dramatically expressed in the time of the first space of Megdash. Each generation highlighting a different aspect of our holiness and of course the ideal is as much as possible to synthesize both forms of that sanctity. In introducing the celebratory and song of praise and thanksgiving that the Jewish people sang after they had finally been free of their Egyptian tormentors. They're on the other side of the Yam and the Egyptians have been drowned in the sea. Of course, the opening, the introduction to this famous song is Oz Yashir Moshe Uvene Yisrael. And Moshe and the Jewish people sang. However, the rabbis in the Medrash and Shmos Rabbah, Parsha Chav Gimel, are sensitive to this seemingly innocuous phrase. After all, later in Sefer Bar Midbar, we will read a song that the Jewish people sang in praise of the well, the Be'er, the miraculous source of water that they had in the desert. And there the Pasuk says, Oz Yashir Moshe v'Yisrael, Moshe and the Jewish people sang, but there's no mention of the word uvenei. If you can convey the same meaning with the words Moshe v'Yisrael, the Medrash is bothered in our Parsha, why does it say Moshe uvenei Yisrael? And the Medrash explains that in fact this is an allusion to the fact that there was benei, there were children who played a unique and prominent role in this song at the banks of the Amsuf. What children, what role did they play, and why did they play such a special role? So the Medrash tells us in fact that these were none other than the young boys who had miraculously survived the decree of death that Paro had levied against all Jewish babies. As we know, the Jewish baby boys were considered a threat because Paro had seen uh, from his sorcerers that a savior for the Jewish people, a young man, would come, and therefore he had decreed all the baby boys should be killed. So we know the story of how Moshe survived, but what about everyone else who was of his generation? How was it, we know that Moshe wasn't the only boy, uh, the only man of his age. How could there have been any? Why weren't they all drowned? So the Medrash tells an incredible and dramatic story. How the mother's, when they were close to giving birth, would go out into the forest. And under the protective uh, 
cover of the forest and the trees, they would give birth to their babies there. But they couldn't stay in the forest. After all, the Egyptian secret police were always watching. They knew who's, which women were pregnant, which were close to term, and who were supposed to be giving birth. And they would regularly be checking in in the houses. That's how they used to found, find the baby boys, unfortunately, who they did successfully kill, murder, and drown. And therefore, if the mother just disappeared, having been known to be a woman who was close to expecting, obviously the Egyptian police would have known something was up. So they had to return home, and they had to leave their children, their newborn babies, in the forest. And the Medrash describes how the mothers, before taking leave of their babies, let out what can only be described as one of the most powerful and heart-wrenching tefillos in all of Jewish history. Says the Medrash, the mothers cry out, Ribon HaOlam, Master of the Universe, Ani Asiti Et Shali, Ata Asay Et Shalcha. Hashem, we did everything we could. We kept our marriages together, even though many of the men wanted to divorce because they were so depressed and had given up hope by the Egyptian decrees. We kept the marriages together. We had families. And now we've done everything we could as a heroic Jewish mother to not only give birth, but to hopefully preserve the life of our new barren baby boy. But we can't do any more. Whether this baby boy survives or not, Hashem... It's up to you. We're leaving it in your hands. Says the Medrash Hashem was so moved by this incredibly powerful and emotional prayer of the mothers that he himself, Kaviachal, as it were, Hashem came down into the forest. He cut the umbilical cord. He washes the baby of all of the natural gook that was on them from the birth. He puts them together, so to speak, wraps them up, swaps them, takes care of them, makes sure that they're physically intact. And then, before leaving, he provides them miraculous sources, both of protection and of sustenance. He provides a type of oil which they can smear on their skin, which will protect them from the elements, as well as honey or some other form of simple... um, food that they would be able to eat and sustenance that they would be able to survive. And it's not clear from the Medrash how long this lasted, but at some point the babies were no longer babies anymore and because they had grown up to a certain age, they were no longer under the threat of the decree of drowning. After all, the decree to drown the babies was dafka that for babies. Once they were just little boys or slightly older than that, they were no longer in danger of the decree of Paro. And therefore, says the Medrash, They knew that it was safe for them to come out of the forest and they would come back home. Could you imagine the sheer shock and unmitigated joy of these parents who had no idea what had happened to their sons? They had just left them in the forest. And now sometime later, it's hard to know whether it's months or years, but sometime later, they come back home. They've survived. They're there. Unbelievable. And the parents are obviously fascinated, they're curious, how did you survive all these years in the forest? And the Medrash says that the children said something incredible. We don't know who it was, but some nice, young, handsome man came and took care of us and did everything we needed. In other words, says the Medrash, when God came down to the forest to miraculously provide for these children, he took the guys as it were. He appeared to the children as if he was a young man. But of course it was really Hashem, but he appeared to them as if he was just a stranger, a do-gooder, a nice young man who was helping them. Says the Medrash in conclusion, Now the Jewish people are standing on the banks of the Yamsuf. The same children who had survived, who are now grown up, they are at the Yam like all the other members of the Jewish people, and they are all 
incredibly thankful and full of praise and thanksgiving to Hashem for doing this incredible miracle, splitting the sea, drowning the Egyptians, and they also want to call out and sing. And we know from Chazal in many places that the entire Jewish people, from the lowest of the low all the way up to the highest of the high, in Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, they had an unbelievable, transcendental, prophetic experience at the Yamsuf, which is unparalleled in all of history. They truly saw God, whatever that means, we don't really understand, but they truly saw God on a level that no other mass group of people had ever seen God in history, never before, and never repeated. And there, at that moment of clarity, these children all of a sudden realize, All of a sudden they realize they had this moment of awareness and recognition for the first time, that the young boy, the young man who had been taking care of them all those years in the, in the forest, all that time in the forest, it was none other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Says the Medrash, until that moment, they didn't realize. But only then they saw with such clarity who Hashem was. And it was a certain level of clarity. They saw Hashem again as that young man. And they realized all that time ago, it was Hashem who had been taking care of them. And that's what the Pasuk says later on in Az Yashir. This is my God and I will praise Him. They were able to see God with such clarity more than anyone else. And they led the praise of the Jewish people there. As the Egyptian army is pursuing the Jewish people and they're getting closer and closer, the Torah tells us in Perak Yudalid, Pasuk Yud, Ufaro Hikriv, Vyisu Bene Israel Esenehem, Vihinei, Mitzrim Nosea Achrehem. The Jewish people are fully aware of the fact that Paro is running after them, he's getting closer, and understandably, Vyurum Od, they're filled with fright, Vyitzaku Bene Israel El Hashem. They cry out to Hashem, they daven to Hashem. Rashi tells us, commenting on this, Tafsu umnus avosam. They adopted the craft, as it were, of their forefathers, of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And Rashi goes on to list very famous psukim in which we know that Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, respectively, all daven to Hashem. It says about Avram, Elam akomasher amadsham, Yitzhak lasuach basadeh, and for Yaakov, Vayifka Bamakom. And all of those psukim are interpreted and understood by the Gemara as alluding to the various avos davening to Hashem. The Lubavar Cherebi of blessed memory, aside from many, many other leadership and even scholarly achievements, is perhaps one of the greatest expositors and analysts and students of Rashi certainly in the last few generations, and maybe one of the greatest ever. He used his enormous, enormous intellect and knowledge to give tremendous sikhas, as he would call them, analyses, long talks, all delving into various nuances of Rashi, discovering heretofore underappreciated gems, perhaps hitting in plain sight, that people didn't realize that really helped us appreciate Rashi and help us understand what Rashi is trying to get at. In a sicha that the Rebbe gave almost 50 years ago, he analyzes this pasuk and specifically this brief comment of Rashi in great depth. Number one asks the Rebbe, what was bothering Rashi that forced him to comment at all? The pasuk seems pretty straightforward without the need for any additional commentary. There was a problem, a crisis, the people cried out. What does Rashi need to add anything? Moreover, this is not the first time that that word, the Yitzaku, is used. Earlier on in Sefer Shmos, when the Jewish people are still enslaved in Parak Bet, it says, 
v'titzaku v'ta'al shavasam elokim. And here, and in there, Rashi doesn't say a word. So how come here, Dafka Rashi comments? Third, why does it refer to the fact that our avos prayed as umnus shalavosam, the craft, or so to speak, the profession? It's just a weird phrase. You don't wouldn't think of it naturally as <clears throat> describing the fact that the avos davened. And last but not least, Rashi points out, excuse me, the Rebbe points out, that as we said, all three of the psukim that Rashi quotes about Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are psukim that undoubtedly Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition, understands are allusions to prayer, to tefillah. But to be honest, none of them are very clear or explicit references to the Ovos Davening. However, the Lubavitch Rebbe points out with great specificity that all three of the Ovos, we have other examples where the Torah is explicit that they davened. So if you want to quote Sukkim to illustrate that the Avos davened, and connect that to the Jewish people davening on the banks of the Yamsuf, why not pick Sukkim in which the Avos are explicitly referred to as davening? Why pick the Sukkim that Rashi indeed selected, where it's only hinted at and alluded to the fact that the Avos davened? Why not give better examples? These are the four questions of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, all on this very brief Rashi. And in order to answer this question, the Lubavitch Rebbe has the following beautiful and profound insight. He says, Rashi was basically bothered by a fundamental question. Hashem had already promised the Jewish people numerous times, conveyed in numerous psukim, that he would not only take them out of Egypt, but he would successfully bring them into the land of Israel. So therefore, says the Rebbe, I have a simple question. If the Jewish people believed in and trusted Hashem's promise, then why are they scared? And if they no longer believed in Hashem's promise, then what are they davening for? It's the classic catch-22. There's no need to daven, and if they feel there is a need, then who are they davening to? Clearly someone who they don't trust and they don't believe in. So therefore, says Lamav Trebi, this is what was bothering Rashi. And therefore Rashi specifically refers to the fact that not only that the Avos davened, but the Avos davened as an umnus. It was what we translated before as their craft. What does that mean, says Lamav Trebi? It's that the Avos didn't just daven when they had a specific need. Umnus means they were, so to speak, professionals at davening. Not just that they were good, it is describing who they were. They always davened. It was part of who they were, their essence. They didn't just daven when they needed something. They davened regularly and consistently, even when they didn't need anything, because they realized that davening is ultimately about having a relationship with Hashem. And as we all know, communication is the key to any relationship. You can't just talk to someone when you want something. God, I have a problem, please help me. Or you got a good thing and say thank you, but never talk to Hashem, have no relationship with Him outside of that or beyond that. Therefore, the Avos regularly talked to Hashem. It was their umness. It was part of who they were. It was part of what they did. Yes, it's true that they sometimes had a need in daven to Hashem like anybody else, but they didn't limit their davening to that. That was the essence of the Avos, and therefore that's why the three psukim were chosen, that were chosen. Because in all three of those cases, in context, there's no obvious need that the Avos were davening for. On the other hand, the explicit psukim that the Rebbe references are all examples where the Avos specifically needed something. For example, Yaakov 
Yaakov was davening, please save me from Esav. Yitzhak is davening to help Rivka conceive. So those are explicit needs. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what was being conveyed, said the Rebbe. What was being conveyed was that it was an umness, that this is what they did. They davened even when they didn't have a need. And therefore, says the Rebbe, now we understand why Rashi not only refers to it as an umness, but why Rashi felt the need to comment what he's conveying and why he did it in the way he did. Rashi is telling us that the Jewish people were davening at this point, even though, of course, they tr- still trusted Hashem. They still believed in Hashem. They didn't have anything genuinely to fear. But they saw this as an opportunity to be like their forefathers, to be tofes in the umnus of their forefathers. Just like their forefathers regularly davened, because that's part of a relationship, this is a normal situation, which even though they trusted Hashem, if they have a relationship with Him, they're going to talk to Him. And that's exactly what they did. Jewish people's 40 years of wandering in the desert, Hashem sustained them and gave them food through the miraculous mun that would fall every day, a single portion of mun which would be enough to be divided into the two meals, the morning and the afternoon meal. However, the Torah tells us in Shmos, Perak Tetzayin, Pasuch of Beis, that on Erev Shabbos, on Friday, Bayom Hashishi, Laktu Lechem Mishnah. In fact, a double portion of mun would fall on Friday morning, when that would be enough for not only the two meals on Friday, but also the two meals on Shabbos. And that is because, as the Torah continues and tells us, that no mun would fall on Shabbos. So instead of mun falling on Shabbos, which it did not, a double portion fell on Friday, and therefore the Jewish people had enough food, enough mun, for two meals on Friday, as well as two meals on Shabbos. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbos, in Daf Kuf Yudzayin Medbet, tells us that we commemorate this miracle and the special kindness of the double portion of mun that fell on Fridays by having each Shabbos meal uh, making hamotzi on not only one, but two separate loaves of bread, two different challahs, a.k.a. Lechemishna as uh, known in the vernacular. And this is based on commemorating that miracle that a double portion of mun fell for the Jewish people in honor of Shabbos. Uh, there is a very interesting discussion in the Rishonim about if there is such an obligation to have the double portion of challah to commemorate the double portion of mun, are women also obligated in this? Obviously, if you have a so to speak, stereotypical family. So then if there's men and women at the table as part of the family, so mamela you'll have it for everyone. But let's say for argument's sake, a woman doesn't want to eat it, or for that matter, let's say women are in a home without men and they're making their Shabbos meal, are they obligated to have the double challah or not? So interestingly, most Rishonim pretty much who discuss this uh, all mention that women in fact are obligated. And what's interesting about the discussion is that there's, there's reason to think that women would be exempt. After all, the mitzvah of Lechem Mishnah, since it appears only on Shabbos, is, seems to be, by definition, time-bound, limited in time. And we know as a general rule, women are exempt from mitzvah ase, shazman grama, positive time-bound mitzvahs women are exempt from. So why should women be obligated? So here we have two suggestions that are offered in the Rishonim. Rabbeinu Tam says that even though it seems to be time-bound, nevertheless women are obligated as an exception to the rule, because of the principle in halacha known as afhein hayub osahanes. Since this is commemorating a miracle, any time there's a mitzvah that commemorates a miracle that women are also the beneficiaries of, women are also obligated to commemorate that miracle. Since the women benefited from the mun, just as much and no less than the men, if the mitzvah of lecha mishnah of a double challah is to commemorate that miracle, 
women should be obligated no less than men. And we have this principle in all the areas of halacha. Very famously, women are obligated to light Hanukkah candles, they're obligated to hear the Megillah, they're obligated to have four cups of wine at the Seder. All of these seem to be time-bound mitzvos, and yet the Gemara in all three of those other places tells us explicitly that women are obligated because of this same principle of afein hayub asa'anes, that is the reason why women are obligated in Lechem Mishnah as well. The Ran, one of the other Rishonim, quotes Rebbeinu Tam, but he thinks, for whatever reason, he doesn't explain why, but he doesn't necessarily love that reason, but he says women are still obligated because of a different principle, one that's not more of a general or meta-halachic principle, but actually a uniquely Shabbos principle, a unique Shabbos halacha, and that is the notion of as follows. We know that in the two different recountings of the uh, Mamad Harsinai, the Jewish people getting the Torah, one in Parshat Yisra, one in Parshat Yashanan, one of the differences between the description of the Ten Commandments, the Aseris Adibros, is that in the first selection, it says, Zachor es Yom HaShabbos Lakacha. You should remember Shabbos, which we understand to mean do the mitzvahs of Shabbos, such as Kiddush. And in the second account of Harsinai, in Parshat Yashanan, it says, Shamor, to guard or to observe Shabbos, which we understand to mean that that refers to the negative precepts. The Lotas says, don't do the 39 prohibited acts of work of Malacha on Shabbos. Now, the Gemara itself asks, well, why is there a contradiction? Why in one place does it say one and not in the other? And the Gemara explains very famously in Masech Brachos and Dav Chaf that Hashem made an incredible miracle at Har Sinai. In addition to all the other miracles, Hashem made an additional miracle that when He said the command of Shabbos, the words Zachor of Shamor actually were uttered simultaneously, exactly at the same time. We acknowledge this every Shabbos Friday night when we sing in the Lechadodi song, Zachor of Shamor Bediborechad, right? Literally, we say they, say, they were said at the same time, and perhaps a greater miracle, somehow the Jewish people were able to hear both at the same time as well. To commemorate that miracle, or should I say, a uh, result of that miracle, says the Gemara, Kosh yeshno b'shmira, yeshno b'shira. Anyone who's obligated in half of Shabbos must be obligated in the other half as well. Shabbos is indivisible. You can't have one half without the other. And therefore, since women are for sure obligated in the negative precepts, women can't do malacha. No one ever thought that women could do malacha on Shabbos. Of course women are obligated in the negative precepts. So therefore, Mamela, since Shabbos is this indivisible unit, it has to be all or nothing. And once women are obligated in half, they're obligated in the shamor, they're obligated in the, in the lotus says they are therefore automatically understood to be equally obligated in the assays as well. And that's why, for example, women are obligated, just like men are, in Kiddush Friday night. So says the Ran, just like women are obligated in Kiddush because of this principle of Zohar V'Shamor, so too women are obligated in Lecha Mishnah because of the same principle. There is an outlying opinion of Shlomo Kluger who thinks that women are exempt from Lecha Mishnah, but the consensus of the post game seems to be for one of the two reasons we mentioned, either because of Afein Hayyubas or because of Zachar Vashamar Badibar Echad. Either way, one way or another, most post game agree that women, in fact, are obligated in Lecha Mishnah. Just to finish off, I'll mention two uh, kind of miscellaneous or random halachos, which I think are sometimes not well known, uh, some practical halachos of Lecha Mishnah, um, and that is. Number one, the Shulchan Aruch rules that when you are making the bracha of Hamotzi, you should be holding the bread directly with your hands, with both hands, and there should be no, nothing interrupting your hands from directly touching the bread. So, for example, the Mission Brewer says not to wear gloves. I don't know how often people would be wearing gloves, but what's a much more common application of this? I think that often people don't realize that their second loaf, if they're not planning on cutting both loaves of, of challah, often the second loaf is still in a plastic bag that they plan on keeping for tomorrow to keep it fresh. So they hold them both, one directly and one through the bag. And that really should not be done. That's a mistake based on this halacha I just mentioned. A second uh, halacha is that very often people are using a regular challah that they plan on eating and a frozen loaf. 
the frozen seems to be inedible. Is that really sufficient for Lechem Mishnah? So the postkim do discuss this. Many postkim argue that since inevitably it could defrost, that's already sufficient. Others are not a fan. I would say if you can avoid it, that's better. But if you end up using it on a frozen loaf, that's okay.